This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. on the podcast and a big special welcome. Thank you so much, Hannah, for being here tonight. Um, I'm really delighted to be on this stage with you. And you have lit my like inner Jersey girl up with your <laughs> wit, your sarcasm, your provocative and inspirational encapsulation of the Enneagram in your book, Millenniogram. And I'm so excited to dive into your background and your work tonight. So thanks Thank for you. being here. Thank you. I'm really excited. Yeah. So throughout your in, in your in, introduction to your book and throughout the book, you kind of lead leave little breadcrumbs of trails of your <laughs> your background of uh, being a missionary growing up in this religious background and then also kind of touching upon different points of your work. So could you just give us a little brief introduction to kind of who you are and your background of what you what led you here to writing this book? Totally. Um, it's been a meandering path. <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely um, – I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian household. My parents read a book um, about being martyrs when I was five and were like, we should do that. Mm. <laughs> um, so they um, sold all of our possessions and, like, legit did the whole, like, missionary thing. Um but they didn't know how to do it, so we drove to South Texas mm-hmm. and um, just kind of, like, popped over to Mexico whenever we felt <laughs> like it. Um, and eventually they, like, went to missionary training school and did the whole thing. So we would, like – I would say we probably spent 50% of the time doing the actual mission work and 50% of the time driving around the continental United States asking people to give us dollars to go continue doing the thing. Mm-hmm. So um, that was my experience growing up. Um, it was a very – I was homeschooled, super nerdy kid. Um, I practiced my signature for 28 <laughs> years, so it's going to come in handy now. Um, that calligraphy is really in oh, handy now. Literally, I was in the calligraphy co-op, so I'm not kidding you. So your book signing is going to be great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hands will not be shaking at all. Um, but yeah, so that was kind of my experience, and I was very, I was a very hypervigilant kid. I was always like... Um, because I was constantly like terrified about hell and like my eternal uh, situation, I <laughs> I um, really I got really into like trying to understand where other people were coming from, especially like my parental figures, because I saw them as like sort of my connection to God. Like they were kind of the arbiters of my um, religious destiny. And so I got really hypervigilant about facial expressions and, like, why why they did what they did. So when I discovered the Enneagram when I was 17, it was like, oh, my God, I finally have the tools. I'm not crazy. Like, I, I can finally get why it is that people do what they do. Um, 
and that was kind of how my nerding out into that sphere mm-hmm. continued yeah mm-hmm. yeah it seems like that was like your own like Enneagram became your own holy grail <laughs> it did it did and I felt like it definitely became originally it was a tool for oh now I can type everybody and understand them and then I was like no I'm not supposed to type other people okay <laughs> <laughs> but like I know um, so yeah so but Obviously, it's an evolution for all of mm-hmm. us. Everybody who discovers Enneagram starts typing people at first. So, it is, you know, forgiveness, repentance. Fine. <laughs> that um, <thread> continues. <laughs> I still type people on TV shows and then I tweet about it. So, really, I'm unrepentant and mm-hmm. sinful. I know. I may have asked you to type me without telling you what type I am. So, by the <laughs> end of this... Maybe she'll have a clue. <laughs> well, if you're going to tell me all of your deepest fears and motivations, okay. maybe we'll get there. You know, I don't think that's the point here. So Ooh. let's move on mm. to our next point. Okay. Um, okay. <laughs> so you speak about uh, the meeting of the mind and the spiritual wor- realm being the way to explore the self through Enneagram. So I'm curious to know um, a little bit more about the background of what your spiritual realm has been now and when writing the book and perhaps how that was influenced by your spiritual or religious upbringing. Yeah, I feel like my um, my spiritual discovery over the past like five to six years has been a lot of, well, this is what it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of um, dismantling, erasing, you know, old um, – old theology, old archetypes about God, about myself, about, um, yeah, how that, how that played into my life. But, um, I feel like the, the Enneagram is, is a tool for connecting with the self, which ultimately is, um, it is, it is a tool in our toolbox towards that. Um, definitely go to therapy, everyone. (laughs) Um, but I think that, I think that the Enneagram has helped me to connect with what self is and a lot of my my fundamentalist understanding of like the Holy Spirit, which is like this internal voice that guides you. Um, it it started to adapt. It started to adapt and to, to evolve my understanding of that. So now I began to realize, oh, that's instinct. That's my intuition. That is like an internal thing based in my body because that's where I feel it. And so I think um, another interesting, I think the triads have been really helpful to me, um, in understanding. So the, there's the thinking triad, the feeling triad and the, um, instinct or the gut triad. And I feel like every, all three of those have different access to spiritual and physical knowledge and they can, they have like superpowers that they teach the rest of us, like as we we kind of have this centralized area of knowledge and we can kind of, if we, if we lean into connecting with them, with the other numbers, then we can gather some of that goodness too. Yeah. I love how you're bringing in this body-based approach. And when I first received your book, I kind of flipped to the back and I think one of the first things that hooked me was that in your additional reading, you listed at the top, like The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And I Mess said, me up good. <laughs> I was like, oh, we're meant to be best friends now. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are. Connecting on stage as most best friends yes. do. Obviously. Either that or via Twitter, right? You know, That's 
honestly, that is where I make mm-hmm. all my friends. So, <laughs> And that's really how you um, kind of got started with um, hashtag Millennialgram. Yeah. Yeah. Millennialgram was a joke. Um, it was started as a joke. Um, it was something where um, I was driving ungodly hours to be a social worker every morning and I realized that I woke up real salty like real sassy first thing in the morning and I was like what am I going to do with all of this (laughs) so as you know when you have an office job you certainly cannot work for like the first hour of that job you just like Mm -hmm. sit at your desk and drink your coffee and Mm -hmm. pretend to be a person Mm -hmm. and so (laughs) what I would do none of us can relate to that (laughs) no no no. I like patently refuse to I don't work an office job anymore but when I did I would not work the first hour Um, my output is better if I don't so Anyway, that was my rationale. (laughs) My boss was uninformed. Um, But anyway, I would just sit at my desk and, like, write out these threads about Millenniagram in the airport. Millenniagram. And that was actually got included in the book, which was fun. Um, But, yeah, it just became a way for me to – I was like, I have 11 years of research and knowledge that nobody is using. And I have found that Enneagram is really helpful. But I kind of just, like, want to be mean to people on the internet. (laughs) Um, so that's where it started. Um, and then people were like, oh my God, this is so me. I feel so seen. And then, and you know, so then I was like, oh, maybe I can use this for good, I guess. (laughs) So people discover their true whole selves. Yes. All right. Okay. (laughs) Um, but I think that was, that was actually kind of helpful for me because as a, as a four with a really strong, like martyr slash savior complex I've always come to like new new uh hobbies new positions new workplaces with this sense of like I have to save the world um and so I kind of love that I approached millennium with kind of this like whatever attitude because I think it can it it ended up coming from a more self-based place for me rather than what I wanted to project to people like this this perfect um this perfect image of myself that I wanted people to see yeah so um I love that uh, you kind of have this meandering way that brought you to writing this book and reminds me of I'm curious if this was part of your process uh Elizabeth Gilbert actually describes I know Eat, pray, love your life. Uh, I know you referenced that. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth just Gilbert describes this idea of creativity and that ideas are kind of out here in this world and they're just looking for a human to birth them. Right. And that is, is that big magic? That is big magic. Okay. And but I like also, it's kind of informed by this kind of mystical haunting or something that just knocks on your door and keeps knocking. So do you feel that that was your experience with Millennialgram? It was like, yeah, this this needs to be a book. Yeah, that, I think that's such a cool way of thinking about it. Um, well, I will say this. So I'm a four. I've been a tortured artist my whole life. Um, I have been a very creative person with very little creative output Mm -hmm. because there was always, um, it was so much more fun to fantasize about the output rather than putting something out into the world that was imperfect and maybe not, didn't live up to my 
expectations. That's your five wings speaking. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but I think what has been cool, and, and this really speaks to my own integration, is that the four moving to one for me has been okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to make things. I'm just going to put them out into the world and I'm not going to worry about whether they are the perfect embodiment of the fantasy that I, you know, like just, just make something and put it out there. Um, so I do, I do think that, I think that, um, I think that Millennium Graham, while it's not, you know, fiction like Elizabeth Gilbert's amazing work, but, um, I think that it was something that, that just kind of hooked me and has kind of carried me on its own journey. I just feel like I'm along for the ride. So (laughs) I'm okay with that. Well, thanks for birthing it for us and for giving us this translation that is so real and applicable. And as a millennial and being surrounded by so many millennials, especially in this kind of booming tech sphere that we have in the Bay Area, um, a lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with the Enneagram. They're more familiar with uh, other personality typologies such as Myers-Briggs or a lot of people still use the strength find, Strengths Finder. Uh, so where do you feel that the lens of Enneagram is very different from these other typologies? I think because it's fluid. I think because, um, and this is this is one of the, primary complaints that I get from people who are just hearing about the Enneagram is, well, I don't want you to slap a number on me. You know, you, you can't pin me down. And I'm like, literally, I am not trying to. Um, there is so, there's so much movement to the Enneagram that I love, um, because life is fluid. Life is movement. Like there's no, um, the Myers-Briggs can be very helpful, but I, you know, I'm an INFP. That doesn't, that that doesn't change. There's no, there's no movement to that. And to me, the idea of being able to integrate or even just to be aware of when I am disintegrating so that I can be like, okay, things are stressful or maybe chaotic or, or maybe there, this is information. Like there's, there's something that I need to pay attention to in my life that, um, that needs adjustment. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily, um, I don't like the equating of, integration with always healthy and disintegration Mm -hmm. with always unhealthy because so much of our life is circumstances outside of our control. Um, but it's, it's just stuff to pay, pay attention to. And so, I mean, if you get into Enneagram, you can Rizzo and Hudson have the levels of health and there's the wings and the instinctual variants. And there's just, there's so, you can go so deep with it. Um, and I just, I don't feel that like room to move around Mm -hmm. in a lot of the other typologies. Yeah, so it sounds like there's a richness to the Enneagram that maybe other typologies don't offer. Yeah, and what I think is interesting is when you get into the conversation of, is it scientific? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not, really, uh, but it's also not not. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes Enneagram so uniquely human is because it's kind of a patchwork of um, a patchwork of handed down knowledge. It's like Enneagram has been like a game of telephone where people have passed down the information and some things get lost in translation, which I think was one of my fears with Millenniagram is putting, putting this, um, ancient wisdom into modern day language. Are we going to lose some of the the depth and the nuance Mm -hmm. in that translation? And that was what I was trying to not do. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think, um, the hodgepodgeness of Enneagram is really fun for me. I, 
I can imagine more scientific minds might might be a, a little persnickety about oh, it. Oh, they are. They are. <laughs> but I think um, I had Mara Wilson on my on the podcast. Her, the episode hasn't come out yet, so look for that. It was an amazing interview. But she talked about essentially if it works, use it. Like um, that, you know, maybe there isn't proof that Enneagram is this like all-knowing system that we can relate to, but but it's helpful to a lot of people. And so I know a lot of therapists who use it in their practices and just because it it's language um, to self-understanding and yeah, it's a new framework to view ourselves, to bring in more compassion and to see the depth of what wholeness actually means yeah. and what it can look like. Right. And for me, it reminds me of this this nature and the ebb of flow of life. Like I'm a, I'm a nervous system nerd. Uh, that's what I like to call myself. Ah, tell me all the things. <laughs> Just about, you know, going back to, you know, our body. Our body keeps the score. It's trauma. There is so much inside of ourselves, but every day, every moment of our life is this ebb and flow. And so one of the aspects about Enneagram is about integration and disintegration. And as you mentioned, there, you know, sometimes is this pull to, okay, I don't want to go towards disintegration. I just want to go towards integration. Yet there's, there's value in, in the movement between both. Yes. Yeah. And I think, um, I think it's really easy to kind of punish ourselves or chastise ourselves when we realize we are in disintegration. And I think there are a lot of instances in which going to that place can actually be quite helpful. Um, Like I talk to a lot of twos who disintegrate to eight Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they are reclaiming their power. They are standing in their own strength and and they are um, not capitulating to people or they're losing kind of that – the passive aggressiveness that that twos can have to, you know, if I give you this, you give back, you know. So um, I think the disintegration space can be really helpful. For me, it's been information. So I disintegrate to two. So whenever I find myself with this kind of like desperate grasping um, approach to my relationships, like I just need more. Why am I not getting what I need? Um, that to me has been like a red flag of, oh, okay, there's there's some reason that I feel desperate or that I feel grasping right now. There's some need that needs to be met that I'm not going to get met out here. It has to be met with self. Um, and so, yeah, I think – and there honestly, there can be weeks where I will feel disintegrated and then the very next week I'll be up here in this, like, organized one space. So I, it is a very fluid thing. I don't think um, – and it's growing up in such a shame-based environment for myself, it's really easy to self-flagellate when I feel like, oh, no, I've been doing all of this work around self-growth and going to therapy and doing, you know, I'm just making money moves. Um, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I'm, you know, in a depression, in a depressive episode and like, how did we get here, you know? Um, but that, but it is such an ebb and flow. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation, but (laughs) we can get into mental health if you want to, but, um, yeah, I, I, I like the fact that we can kind of like sort of map, um, that fluidity. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and your your tagline of kind of how you introduce kind of each of your podcasts, and <laughs> <laughs> I love this. One. So your tagline is is about digging ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Yeah, bitch. And, yeah. that's what it's about. <laughs> and it's me. It's like it's like getting fucking real with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I cursed. I went there, and uh, we've have this suppressed voice that we're meeting stories about ourselves that for years that we've told ourselves for years with compassion, with vulnerability, with courage. And that's not really the easiest task to ask someone to do, especially with uh, millennials and they're like, oh, I'm so busy. I, I can't do this. And I maybe I can just read it on Twitter and maybe I'll like heal and be an integrated person. Um, we love our like shared Instagram posts with like, you know, the little the little therapy tidbits. Yeah. I do it all day, every day. Mm-hmm. So you just put it on your stories and then it's true. Yeah. Um, so then I've definitely internalized it and <laughs> made the corresponding change. It's done. So, yeah. Um, and I still and I feel like we have this little flair for dramatics. What? Mm, just, just Ridiculous. Bit. And it can sometimes feel like we have to go into this dark night of our soul. Like, get in there, get all, um, get like, sort around in my trauma. And it can either be a place when we meet ourselves there, like, nah. Actually, I don't think I want to go there, so I'm just oh, going to make... Oh, I'm a sucker for punishment. <laughs> I love to go there. Yeah, well, so there's this, there's this push-pull of the group of people that go there and stay there and marinate, and then the people who are like, nah, I'm going to get out and just make it look like I might have got, gone and done the work, right. but I really haven't. Right. Um, so... This sometimes makes me feel that in a way we're really actually scared of embracing joy and that, um, you know, you talk about this being the full spectrum of humanity, that to embrace joy, we we have to go to those depths, but sometimes we get stuck in those depths. Right. So can you talk a little bit about the role of embracing joy through Enneagram? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I have I've always been the classically tortured four and I and I've had a lot of pushback from other fours like, hey, it doesn't always suck. Like we we're not always marinating in in um, sadness, um, which I was deeply offended by. Um, but <laughs> you're like, the but then it also out. made me feel unique. So but I think ultimately when there's there's so much it is so scary to confront um those survival stories that we have written with our lives i especially for me as a four like our fixation is on seeing a particular image of ourselves um so i have lived an entirely different reality than most of my friends and peers and exes um and so coming to terms with that is extremely painful but I think when you can see yourself truthfully that is that is a relief in and of itself and so and that for me um being able to access true self which I have always known is in there but it's almost been like uh, you know kind of this um like I couldn't quite couldn't quite reach her. Um, but for me, there's so much joy in being able to converse with the self in a way that I've never had access to before. And I know that that is 
uniquely difficult for the different types. Um, for me, once I get past this mirage that I, this kind of storefront that I have created for myself when I look at my own life, once I get past that, then I'm like, yes, I am with the self. We are best friends. We are in perfect harmony. And, and that's not always the experience for some of the other numbers. There's other um, difficulties that they face with that. But I think the more that we can access true self, the more that we will be able to um, tap into those moments of joy because it will it will allow us to be present. And ultimately, um, presence is where we find those that daily joy. And so you mentioned uh, one of the aspects that really has intrigued me in your book uh, of survival stories. So do you mind diving into a little bit about maybe going into the different numbers and their survival stories? Yeah. So the survival stories um, to me um, are is this concept that I came up with because um, I see I see the ways that the childhood wounds of the individual numbers have created this recurring narrative in our minds um, that informs the way that we handle conflict in relationships. It informs the way that we make decisions for our lives. Um, You know, so for me as a four, there was always this internal message of, I don't belong. I am an outsider. I am not, I will never be seen and known the way that I want to be. Um, And that was definitely, that was shown to me as a small child. That, that was, I, w- I didn't come up with this out of nowhere. Um, I definitely, that was what I experienced. Um, but then that has been a recurring theme for me in, in the workplace. So just assuming coworkers don't want to be my friend or like there's so many different ways that that shows up. And so when I look back through my 28 years of life, I can see, I can see that co- those common threads that have woven so far what is my survival story and the coping mechanisms that we build to kind of perpetuate that story because that's what becomes comfortable to us is to live that narrative even though it might not actually be true or maybe it was back there but it's not now. Um, you know, I, I see it all the time in my intimate relationships because, you know um, – I'm in close relationship with an eight who internalized the message at a young age that she was too much. And so anytime that we get into conflict and I am somehow cowed by her big eightness, she internalizes the message that I'm telling her that she's too much. And I'm like, no, 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 I got to what you're seeing here is a conflict avoidance that I need to work on. It isn't I'm not trying to portray that to you, but she's feeling that from me. Um, and so, and that has been a common thread in all of, in her narrative up until now. Um, should we try and go through all of them? Sure. Let's keep going. So we are, part of, <laughs> so we have the, the, um, the feeling triad is where the four sits. Yes. And, uh, the gut triad is where the eight sits. So we've gone through two of those. So why don't yeah. we stick through the, the feeling triad, which is two, three, and four. So. Yeah. So I see the twos and the threes um, survival stories as very similar. Um, They are both trying to earn love and affection, um, but they have different different ways of doing it. So the the two often wants to be seen as helpful, to be seen as needed. They want to be needed. Um, 
they need to be needed. <laughs> um, and so what happens is um, they kind of internalize this message that um, if I give and give and give of myself, then everyone will give back to me what I need. That my needs will get met by all of you because I gave you things. Um, and then inevitably when that doesn't happen, then resentment builds up because all of these people are never there for me. I have to do everything. You know, I'm just, I'm always on my own. Why isn't anybody helping me? Um, and it's because you're not helping you, boo. That's what's, that's what's going on there. Um, yeah. And then the threes are more like they are trying to they're trying to earn their value. Um, they're often read as very arrogant, and I don't think that that's necessarily um, a healthy way to look at them. I think that they are working way fucking harder than the rest of us to earn their value, um, usually because there was a parental figure or some kind of um, cultural understanding that they had to get those good grades or, or whatever it was that they had to project this um this success to fake it till you make it kind of thing so um I'm I'm in a cl- I'm in close relationship with a with a three who is kind of like I don't know if I've ever had autonomy over my own life I have always chameleoned to whatever I felt like you know whatever this church or whatever this workplace or whatever whatever was needed of me in that moment, I was. Because I, I, am, I am astute. I am emotionally aware of what the other person wants from me or what this organization wants from me, and I can make that happen. Um, but then he's like, was it ever, was any of it ever really me? Existential crisis ensues, you know, go to therapy. <laughs> um, so there's the twos and the threes. Um, the thinking triad um, I love them. I will never understand them. Um, but I will try so hard. I will never stop trying. Um, I have had an endless crush on fives forever because fives are always trying to intake knowledge. Um, and so they always have come across to me as like, they read like they're cold and detached and, um, like they think they're geniuses. And I'm like, uh, I don't know about that, but um, you definitely have more facts than me. Okay, you've chronicled and you've cr- yeah you've collected you've them. collected them. Um, just because I can't rattle off whatever date that whatever war happened doesn't make you smarter than me. Um, but but behind that is this sense that like they were somehow born with this inability to competently be humans in the world, and so they have to amass knowledge. Um, and so they, they get stuck in this preparation mode of like, I'm going to keep collecting, I'm going to keep preparing. Um, but then, you know, maybe doing something with the knowledge that they create or going to that eight place of becoming more embodied. There's a really, there's a detachedness from, from the physical body as well with fives that, that makes it hard for them to act on their attractions or, um, act on their, the connections that they feel with other people. Um, the sixes I see is very similar to that. Um, but sixes are less concerned with sixes are more concerned with security. So, um, they often internalize the message at a young age that someone in a position of leadership or authority was not to be trusted. And so they're just kind of in this constant state of what is safe, what is secure, how do I find my home base, how do I find um, 
how do I find safety for, for me and my loved ones? Um, so they're great friends to have because they're always trying to make you feel safe, um, but never really feeling it themselves. And so they kind of have like what I call a bunker brain where they, um, they're always prepared for the worst possible situation to happen. So they're literally like Dr. Strange in the movie where he like goes through the 50 million different possible outcomes <laughs> of any possible situation. Um, I have a very dear six friend who will go to a restaurant and she'll be wiping down the table with hand sanitizer mm-hmm. because we <laughs> might die of an infectious mm-hmm. disease at the payway, you know? Yeah. Um, I've given my six friends and partners when I go to the restaurant, I'm like, yes, you may sit in the chair that looks at the door because I know uh, you secretly <laughs> really want that chair. So I'll just give it to you. <laughs> that is so thoughtful of you. I try. I try. Just to, just to quell their little anxious fear inside of them. Right. <laughs> so, so where fives are grasping for knowledge, sixes are grasping for security, sevens are Sevens are an interesting one because they don't always come across like they would be part of the thinking triad. They often get written off as less smart or like, you know, the the class clown or whatever. Um, but sevens are really, are really interesting because they're always trying to take in more experiences. They want, they want to stay one step ahead of the anxiety or one step ahead of the fear because fear is that kind of recurring theme in the thinking triad numbers. Um, And so I had a dear seven friend who she had aspirations of of being this amazing singer um, and she was one. Um, But what would happen was she would just spend months going to, you know, the next party, the next social engagement, having the next like deep conversation where she connected with somebody on a deep level for a night. And then, you know, she'd wake up three months later and be like, oh, my God, I haven't I haven't written a song in months like I'm not following I'm not following what what I want to be doing but it's just it that's kind of um that was kind of like a pattern that she would get into pretty regularly. So I think for sevens I think the sweet spot is when they integrate to five and they find instead of going wide and being a jack of all trades they find like this one area that they're so excited about and they bring all that enthusiasm and passion to this particular field or particular area of interest or maybe it's even just like their fucking family I don't know like whatever it is that makes them just light up mm-hmm. um they don't cease to have that like infectious seven energy but it, it but it kind of helps I have a close seven friend who is um she works at a um she works at an HIV testing center and I was like ooh that's that sounds that sounds hard And she was like, you know, honestly, I just, um, I make it fun, Mm -hmm. you know, like I connect with these people who are in this like crisis moment and kind of like deescalate the stress, bring it down, give them like pragmatic things that they can do. And so, um, I can't imagine, but I love that Mm -hmm. for them. Um, it's more directive of their energy in yeah. that way. Yeah, and this is something that they're super passionate about. And so, yeah. Um, we talked about eights a bit. I think there's kind of this, and especially what I've noticed when I interview a lot of eights who are people of color, um, and especially women of color, is that they 
really get coded as being angry and being fierce and just, you know, they, they kind of get, um, they get pegged, um, because they are willing to speak up because they are willing to, um, leave the abusive work situation before the rest of everyone will. Um, they have such a deep connection to their into into to their intuition, almost to the point where sometimes I'll be with my um, eight partner and she'll be like, "That guy's dangerous," and I'll be like, "Okay, you don't know that." She's like, "No, no, no, I know it," and I'm like, "All right, I don't know if I buy it. I want to buy it." that seems a bit much but but she's never wrong um and so it's just they they're so deeply connected to that gut instinct that most of us are afraid to act on or we gaslight ourselves about um so I have really learned a lot from eights in the past few years of just living into embodiment and living into um protecting myself from abuse and like speaking up for myself um but there is that fear of being too much that is so often um, something that they actually experience, that they're actually told, they're actually let go from jobs where they are, where they speak out or take leadership when it wasn't given to them. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's kind of a survival story for eights. Um, there's a yeah, there's kind of a a thread of burning bridges as well because <laughs> uh, they're just like, fuck that, yep. fuck that, and also fuck you. Um, That's why I think you're very appropriate in naming them the dragons. <laughs> they are. Fire-breathing, passionate, fiery, but also 100%. you know, not wanting to burn everyone around them that they have this – instinct, you know, a little bit of instinct to protect and defend within them. Yes. And I, yes, 100%. Um, I think with eight going to the two, there's nobody who's more generous. There's nobody who's more protective. There's nobody that you want on your team more than an eight. Um, but I think then even the name, the dragon kind of speaks to how other people perceive them. Mm-hmm. Um, because I know that I have, I know that I have allowed myself to be cowed by that power in the past. Um, it can be intimidating. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so the nine, um, nines are precious. Um, I, a lot of them have internalized the message that, um, for whatever reason they don't matter or their opinions don't matter. Their, um, their feelings don't matter. And so they just learn to kind of not speak them or maybe not to even really be aware of them. Like there's, Um, I had a nine boyfriend who I would ask him how he felt about things and he would genuinely kind of pissed that I asked him, um, because that wasn't, that wasn't in his plan for the evening, you know? (laughs) 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 And, um, so I think there's kind of this sense of like moving through, like letting life happen to you instead of happening to life yourself, um, I have a nine friend who on the pot on my podcast Millenniagram described herself as um she said my my true self is like um a child meandering down a oh man I'm gonna mess it up um what are those called the water park like the those lazy like water, lazy, river? lazy water park rivers um where she kind of 
woke up 10 years into like an abusive marriage and you know a position that she didn't want to have but she had just been kind of maintaining for a while and didn't realize that she was being carried by the current and none of the decisions that had happened um, were her own choosing kind of similar to the three which is why the three six nine dynamic that triangle is fun Um, because they all integrate and disintegrate to each other it's a whole thing Um, and then the ones um, I love ones they're so pure Um, but I think a lot of ones internalize this message that um, that they were not good and that um, and that they needed to be and that and that they could arrive at goodness Um, and so I, I see it a lot in the producer for my, for my podcast is a one. And if he makes the slightest mistake, he will self-flagellate to me in our text thread for hours. I wrote about it in the book because it's so, it's so over the top, but I can tell that it's coming from a genuine place of him feeling horrible about making a slight error. And I'm just like, bro, I'm making errors coming and going. So I'm not keeping track of yours, man. Um, (laughs) No scorecard here. No scorecard here, dude. I know you're keeping mine, but I don't want to know about it. Um, Never show me. (laughs) Yeah, please, please burn it. Um, But yeah, I think once he was able to get out of this – once he was able to get out of this survival story of needing to be good, of needing to be right, um, which especially coming from a fundamentalist background is just, you know, you can you can dig deep on the self-flagellating there. I wonder how many times in one episode I can say self-flagellating. That's a <laughs> good one. Hashtag self-flagellating. Oh, good Lord. Um, but yeah, so once he was able to realize that, oh, things like my attraction or things like – um, you know, what I actually enjoy and I'm interested in. It's not black and white. Um, and he didn't like things that weren't black and white, but, um, but there's a whole experience of humanity outside of what is good and correct. Um, and that can be difficult to kind of redirect. And so out of all of these survival stories that each unique number has, although, you know, through all of them, there is a little bit of a common thread of just knowing oneself and being in a place to kind of reckon and rumble with that story that we've written or that may have you know, previously been written for us by generations um, coming before. Do you feel that there is a unique story that millennials have or a unique challenge that we have that really drove you to translate this old patchwork wisdom for the specific um, generation? So I do. I think um, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that they all kind of have this common theme of they have a common theme of scarcity. They have a common theme. The survival, the survival stories have a common theme of scarcity, a common theme of lack of presence, um, and uh, a common thread of disconnection from the self. So we all have different ways back to self. Um, but yeah, so with millennials, I feel um, I know that I know that there is no one true 
average millennial. <laughs> but I but I noticed um, that in my circles, which are largely queer, largely activist, largely um, just uh, it seemed like I didn't know anybody without a mental illness. It seemed like all of us were so freaking exhausted and were, you know, in, supposed to be in the prime of our life. Um, and we've inherited a fucked up economy and a fucked up planet. And it can feel like, I know for me, especially after the election in 2016, I felt like I have to be at every action. I have to be at every protest. Like I, there's everything is priority. Like it, it felt like there was nothing, um, you know, Every, all of the pets' heads are falling off, you know, like <laughs> we have to fix everything now. Um, and so I think we are in a unique time and a unique situation that requires um, an immense amount of self-ability, um, an immense amount of presence that a lot of us just don't have because we're exhausted, we're traumatized, we're mentally ill, we're poor, we're broke, we're all of these things. Um Yes, I know there are rich millennials and I know that it happens. I don't know where, but I'm sure that it does. Um, but anyway, it just seems like we have we have unique challenges and we do have kind of this common cultural thread among millennials of like, we love talking about self-growth in 140 characters. <laughs> um, and I think not to knock that, I genuinely, I've gained... A, a master's degree worth of information from Twitter just by listening to people of color on the internet for 10 years, you're going to learn a lot. Um, but it just seems like, it seems like there can be, we want those shortcuts. And I think in order to bring our whole presence to um, this kind of terrifying time that we live in, it requires um, a groundedness that we don't all have. I certainly didn't, and I didn't know a lot of people who did. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I was like, the Enneagram is a tool that I have that you can now add to your toolbox of whatever you need to, to access centeredness. Mm -hmm. Also, you, yoga practice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for everybody. Namaste. Um, <laughs> I do teach yoga, which is which is why I made that joke. Um <laughs> And, you're allowed. Okay, you're allowed. Thank we'll allow you. <laughs> um, you. Well, thank you for that description of um, kind of how in on the whole, this idea of presence is kind of at the crux of of the Enneagram is is being able to just sit down with yourself and say hi. <laughs> and how yeah how fucking hard that is for for us to do as human beings and the the grit and the fortitude that we are expending out into our world that our our nervous systems in our society just for all of those reasons that you just listed are kind of always on mm -hmm. and that's um that's what really intrigued me about your uh, your kind of body based approach to the Enneagram and being um, becoming more embodied through this pathway. Yeah, well, and I think if you think about it, the the three triads all and I tried to to kind of say this earlier, but 
your gut instinct, your brain, and your heart space are all, they're all localized in the body. And so I'll, I'll be the first to say I, I grew up in, a, in an environment where um, the body was punished, the body was, um, well, at best ignored, at worst punished, um, just for existing or having urges or, you know, um, so I am, I'm trying to learn how to integrate embodiment into Enneagram. I definitely have not arrived yet. That's why I was like, when you were interviewing me, I'm like, oh my God, please teach me everything. Um, but I think that once we, once we harness the, the power that our individual number has and we find it in our body, um, then that kind of that kind of brings us back to that presence as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you kind of are alluding to like what are the next steps for the development of exploring Enneagram? Yeah, and um, I had the pleasure of talking with you before, and we kind of talked and you know, touched upon the idea of attachment theory and the role of um, parenting and reparenting ourselves, and that's something that you, mm. yeah, mm. you so good. <laughs> So that's the juicy meat of it is that uh, you kind of say that the the key to integration is the ability to reparent ourselves and to rewrite that story of meeting ourselves how we would have want to be met when we were little and didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. So in my own therapeutic work, I've been doing a lot with internal family systems, which is amazing, but I'm not going to talk to everyone about it. Yeah, I, I can't teach it in, you know, however many minutes. But um, there is this sense of um, – there's this sense of going back and interacting with young parts that are stuck in developmental stages but that still come out in the way that we interact with the world. So, um, you know, you might have a five-year-old part that – that was told her feelings were too much and to just shut up and just repress it. And so that part will still act out in adult relationships now. So um, for me, I think it's fascinating to think about meeting those childhood wounds and kind of meeting that that kid back there who was told that her feelings didn't matter. And what what do I wish had been said to her and what do I have the chance to say to her now? Um, that's a whole emotional wreck of a situation if you, (laughs) if you really go there. But, um, but I think, I think the Enneagram illuminates those childhood wounds. And I think those, I know for me, the, the biggest, loudest, saddest, most traumatized part that I have that's stuck in time is the one um, that corresponds with the forged childhood wound. So I'm like, oh, interesting connection. Um, so yeah, it's all about reparenting for sure. And I think, um, which is hard because for me, the idea of parenting has been, I've been scared about for a long time because I had the one experience. Um, and I know my parents tried their hardest and yet here I am 28 years later, just a ball, a mess. Um, (laughs) but I think watching my friends now parent and, and seeing the ways that, that they meet their children with presence and, and share energy with them has kind of, um, 
it's it's created a, an example for me to follow in interacting with my own young parts. Yeah, it gives you an opportunity to say, oh, this can actually happen. And then yeah. the transformation can happen for yourself. Yes. You can get to that place where um, if you wanted to bring children into this world, that you could step into that role as well. And I have a lot of parent friends who say that like parenting their own kids is and they're reparenting themselves at the same time. It's like a, a tandem process that is very overwhelming, but very valuable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so what do you think is, the, for moving forward, the best thing that could happen with the Enneagram? Wow. Um, well, a few things. Um, I personally am trying really hard with with my podcast and with my work to center queer voices with the Enneagram. I think, um, I think that is a piece that's been missing. I think, um, the more that we start to hear about trauma informed practitioners, um, is really helpful. Um, I would really like to see, like I mentioned to you, kind of, um, bringing the Enneagram into, um, kind of some of those therapeutic approaches and some of those, like, um, I would love to connect Enneagram and, um, somatic work more. Um, I think, I think that as much as it can be used as a tool of, um, of understanding ourselves, but also then understanding one another, um, is key. I, I'm not at all saying that, you know, we should all just get along more, (laughs) but I am saying that, um, we do that offering one another the big heartedness that, uh, understanding brings to us, um, can help us meet people where they're at and approach them with compassion rather than, um, anger and withdrawal. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to hear all of the the different ways that that can go, um, and the the I think there's a breadth of experience around the enneagram that um, ha- maybe hasn't been written about or voiced yet. Um, but I'm starting to I'm trying to create a platform for that, and um, I'm learning a lot from others in the process. So. And does that mean another book for you to delight our ears, audio, if you're an audio <laughs> learner or visual? Um, I, yes. I don't know. I, I haven't put all of, I, I feel like I'm right on the cusp of like the thesis statement for, for book two, but I'm not quite there yet. But I'm doing a lot of research. Um, I, you know. I'm trying to figure out how to get um, a PhD in psychology without actually taking out any school loans. So mm. if I can just get all Twitter. the syllabi. Twitter is well. what you said before. It's like <laughs> you got your master's on yeah, Twitter. Yeah. Maybe your PhD on Instagram. There you Either go. one. There you go. Settled. <laughs> no more school loans for me. But um, yeah, I'm doing research for it currently. Mm. Amazing. Well, Thank you so much for sharing um, your background, your history, and this wisdom. And um, 
Maybe you know what number I am. Maybe not. Um, we haven't shared. We didn't that, get but into we didn't you. Get into that. We didn't get into we'll you. Maybe that that'll the, be next time. Yeah, next next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go there. But thank you so much for sharing um, your wisdom and this book. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And again, let's thank you, Hannah. This was amazing. So. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>